according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 32. We somehow got through chapter 31 last week. I'm not sure how. There is so much in chapter 31 as it relates to the new covenant. Well, guess what? We get to come back to it again in chapter 32 and again in chapter 33, that there are follow-up uh, iterations of the new covenant in these subsequent chapters. It's not unlike the Abrahamic covenant, which is first introduced in Genesis chapter 12 and then has subsequent reiterations in chapter 13, 14, 15, 17, 22, You have other iterations of the Abrahamic covenant as it gets reconfirmed to Isaac and to Jacob, for example. And so something similar here where we have the main introduction to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and then subsequent iterations in chapter 32 and 33 that will add additional detail and will add additional uh, components that we have to uh, bake into the cake. We have to uh, include it in the mix in in terms of understanding everything that Isaiah and Jeremiah have to say about the, uh, the coming new covenant that Yahweh will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So we want to get right back to it again here this morning. Now there's a particular message that comes in chapter 32, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. And we have one of the more precisely dated chapters, which we're thankful for because almost nothing in in Jeremiah is is dated with such precision. And we're left with a scrambled uh, eggs batch of of chapters that are put together, not in a sequence, but in a thematic uh, uh, development. But here we have some precision, and uh, we're going to talk about that in a moment. Let's open with a word of prayer, asking the Father to set aside distractions and to overcome allergies and to bless our time in His Word this morning. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you thankful for your truth and rejoicing once again that we have the blessing to assemble together and to receive instruction. Who are we, Father, that we should be brought into your counsel? And yet here we are. Father, you have provided for us the mind of Christ. You have given us the complete canon of Scripture. You have blessed us with God the Holy Spirit indwelling every believer. Whereby, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved, you lead us in all things, even the deep things of God. So we call upon your faithfulness yet again, that this morning as the word of God goes forth, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, set aside distractions, and humble us under the authority of your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we can essentially break this chapter down into uh, two halves, or we'll, we'll break it down into three sections, actually. Next, chapter 33, we can break down easier, I think, into first half and second half. But as we cover these early verses, we recognize that we're approaching the fall of Jerusalem. We're in the final year that they are under siege. They've had uh, Babylonians surrounding them for some time, and they're on the verge of destruction. So this 10th year of Zedekiah, how long does Zedekiah reign for? He only reigns for 11 years, right? So we're getting close to the end of his reign. And uh, the 18th year 
of Nebuchadnezzar. And there's some interesting uh, sequence or uh, uh, synchronization that, that goes into there. Uh, in, in the Jews that, that rendered their year from the fall to the fall and the Babylonians that rendered their year from the spring to the spring. Uh, the Babylonians that did not count the ascension year, but the Jews who did count the ascension year. Different aspects of calendars that, uh, that are just fascinating in, uh, in its detail that testify to the accuracy of the Word of God more than anything else, and uh, we can appreciate it. In any event, at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was under arrest. He was shut up in the court of the guard, which was in the house of the king of Judah. And then we get a little bit of a flashback here in verses two, uh, 3 and following that tell us why J- uh, Jeremiah was in jail. Uh, because Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. <laughs> and so he didn't like the message. And why are you prophesying that? And the penalty for prophesying what the king doesn't want to hear is going to jail. And uh, this is what we see here in, in one of several times that Jeremiah found himself in, uh, in the clink. All right. So this is what Jeremiah had been preaching. Thus says the Lord. Uh, continuing on verse 4, And Zedekiah king of Judah will not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but will surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. And he will speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And uh, shortly after that, his eyes would be gouged out. And uh, not communicated here, but we know that from elsewhere. And he will take Zedekiah to Babylon, and he will be there until I visit him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Chaldeans, you will not succeed. All right, so that content then, uh, verses 3 through 5, is the explanation for the preaching that got Jeremiah in jail. And Jeremiah's in jail here, which we see uh, in verses 2 and 3. And uh, like uh, most good prophets, like most good Bible teachers, and anyone that's going to be faithful to the Lord, a little external hostility does not slow him down. In fact, it doesn't keep Jeremiah from preaching. Uh, Zedekiah had Jeremiah jailed for prophesying, but that didn't stop Jeremiah's next prophecy. And so, uh, you know, like the Apostle Paul would say, the Word of God is not imprisoned. And uh, if God puts you where He wants you, then the external circumstances don't really matter, do they? That you can still stay faithful and continue to serve Him in uh, that capacity wherever you may find yourself. And so uh, with the background of the chapter in verses 1 through 5, uh, it serves kind of as a neat backdrop for what follows in verses 6 through 15. As Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me saying. So, so much for the incentive to stop prophesying, <laughs> okay? The king says, quit doing that. And the king puts him in jail. And what does he do? He keeps prophesying because the word of the Lord keeps coming to him. And if he tries to not express it, if he tries to hold it in, we saw, I think it was chapter 20 or thereabouts, if he tried to hold it in and not, not uh, speak it, it was like a fire burning in his soul, a fire burning inside of him, and he had to, he had to get it out. Jeremiah's message was not politically correct, especially during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, the, the false prophets were given the happy messages. We've seen those before. The false prophets, like Hananiah, were coming along and breaking the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck and saying, hey, happy days are soon, soon coming. 
and making these bold predictions that within two years uh, all those captives are coming back from Babylon and the ark is coming back and all the temple plunder is coming back and we got great things coming up in just two years. And uh, remember the false prophet Hananiah that was, that was predicting these things. There were others as well that Jeremiah had to contend with. I'm suspicious that uh, I don't, if there was another faithful prophet still in Jerusalem, I don't know who they might have been. Because it seems to me with Daniel and Ezekiel gone uh, already in Babylon in their own captivity that uh, Jeremiah is pretty much the last man standing, as, as it were, in terms of faithful prophets still holding down the fort in uh, Jerusalem itself. The Bible Knowledge Commentary I recommend uh, often as a useful resource and I appreciate that there's an Old Testament volume and a New Testament volume. You can get it in print, you can get it in Logos. And uh, this is the entry here for Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah recorded the time frame in which this prophecy was given because of its significance to the message. The time was the 10th year of Zedekiah, which was also the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The 10th year of Zedekiah would have ended on October 17th, 587 B.C. That's using the, Jew, the Judean Tishri to Tishri year, all right, where they start their year in the fall. And uh, we understand that. Well, the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar began on April 23rd, 587, using the Babylonian Nisan to Nisan year. Thus, this prophecy occurred sometime between April 23rd and October 17th of 587 B.C. If we're going to proleptically give it our our Gregorian dates and and work it backward to to find an equivalency, we would uh, use this. During this time, Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, a siege that lasted from January 15th, 588 until July 18th, 586. And Jeremiah was under arrest and confined in the palace courtyard of the guard. And uh, this is what we're looking at here. Remember, in the ancient world, they didn't have a whole lot of jails. The the punishment was not as we have it today. Uh, The idea of just warehousing somebody for a period of time was was not productive. Uh, In the ancient world, if you were you were most likely you were sold into slavery if you weren't executed. If we had to get value out of out of somebody out of a criminal, then uh, or out of someone that sold themselves into slavery for their own indebtedness then uh, often that was the case. And they would, they would be put to work and they would work off their crimes and they would work off their debts and so forth. The idea of just sitting there eating the king's food in the uh, court of the guard um, was not a common procedure. But this is what we're dealing with here. All right. Now, um, what happens while he's in the midst of this is he's given uh, a business opportunity. So let's... Uh, Let's take a look at this before I put that slide up. So he's preaching. The king says, quit that, puts him in jail, and he keeps preaching. And while he's preaching, more opportunities are presented to him. And so uh, to me, it's interesting. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. And here's a, a word of the Lord that comes to Jeremiah. And it's not sweeping, it's not to be preached, it's not like the new covenant <laughs> where he used to stand and say, thus saith the Lord, my cousin's showing up tomorrow, okay? Um, but this is a personal message that's coming to the prophet, and it's, it's, it's a nice little window into the operation of prophets in the Old Testament, similar to uh, when Samuel was given warnings about the arrival of, of, King, of Saul that uh, Saul was going to come, uh, and he's looking for his father's donkeys. I uh, want you to take him and anoint him king. 
and, uh, and he's given notice 24 hours ahead of time. And then when Saul shows up the next day looking for his father's donkeys, uh, the Lord says, that's the one I told you about yesterday. Go make him king. And in, we have these little glimpses into how the prophets operated in the Old Testament. Here, Jeremiah is given the heads up. Uh, you, you know, uh, you're getting a visit tomorrow, right? And prisoners like visits. And, uh, but here's a visitor that's coming. It's his cousin who's coming with a business opportunity and uh, an opportunity to redeem a field under the Mosaic Law principle of, of redemption, the kinsman-redeemer doctrine that's so important in Old Testament studies. All right. So that's uh, the message in verses 6 and 7. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Behold, your cousin's going to show up tomorrow, and uh, he's going to offer you to buy this field at Anathoth. And this is what happened. So verse 8, lo and behold, right? Uh, Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard according to the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field, please, that is at Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin. For you have the right of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. I mean, the message came yesterday, and here's Hanamel showing up today with a business opportunity. Jeremiah is given the privilege of redeeming his cousin's land. He's given the privilege of redeeming his cousin's land. And uh, the full impact on this is extraordinary when you consider, of course, (laughs) that they're surrounded by armies, the city is about to be destroyed, everyone's about to be killed, Uh, you'd think they have other things to worry about besides rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, (laughs) all right? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a marvelous blessing of the Lord's that even under concepts of imminency, we're still operating with long-term wisdom. We're still operating in long-term planning. In other words, I expect the rapture of the church today, but I'm still living with the principles that we're preparing for the next generation and we're preparing for long-term in, in uh, the pastors we're training and in, in uh, everything else that we're doing as a church, the missionaries we're supporting and, and other things long-term. And so we have uh, blessings here. Most of the commentaries want to take this and relate it over to events of chapter 37 uh, because, again, it's a real estate deal. It's uh, centered in, in Anathoth, uh, the territory of his birth. Um, I'm not as sold on that because uh, I think the details are, are divergent. Uh, but whether they're connected or not, it uh, doesn't affect how we understand this chapter or how we uh, understand chapter 37. If you're not familiar with the Levitical Code and what this is about, then just a a brief uh, side trip to Leviticus 25 will help, or the book of Ruth. I mean, the entire book of Ruth is centered in this. Uh, But Leviticus 25, and remember, land to Israel was more than just real estate. It was more than just property. Beyond that, the portions that were specifically spelled out belonged to to the tribes, they belong to the clans, and within the, the clans, they belong to the families. And, uh, and so the right of inheritance, the right of, of passing that to the next generation was, 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 was vital. I mean, it was essential in the understanding of this as far as Israel was concerned as a covenant nation before the Lord. And so if 
um, if the land was lost, if because of debts it had to be sold, if it was uh, in danger of being given over to other people outside the clan, outside the tribe, uh, then it had to be redeemed to keep it within the clan, within the tribe, see? And that was for God's reasons, not man's reasons, because God had promised this land to these tribes. All right, so uh, in Leviticus 25, verses uh, 25 through 28 is the procedure that's spelled out here. If a fellow countryman, let's see, um, even backing up to verse 23, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, and you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. There was a connection between God and his people and the land that he was giving to them. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient uh, for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return the property. But if he has not been found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of the purchaser until the year of Jubilee. At that, uh, but at the Jubilee, it shall revert that he may return to his property. All right, and so we have principles here that apply uniquely, that apply to the covenant nation of Israel as far as Jubilee and the, and the forgiveness of debts and the restoration to, to the, uh, uh, the families and the clans and the tribes that the land was promised. These are not principles, by the way, that we can readily adapt in a Gentile nation or in, in uh, we can glean principles, but specific Jubilee forgiveness is not a feature of, of our economic system. Um, in any event, this is the background for this. And so this is the background in the book of Ruth, right? Because that land had to be redeemed. And along with redeeming the land comes the widow, that uh, the widow of Elimelech uh, is, is still available and, and needs to bear a child to bear up a name for, for, for uh, Elimelech in uh, Ruth chapter 4. I mean, let me just grab these verses here as well. Because we're introduced to Boaz and we're introduced to Knucklehead, uh, the guy who was closer to Ruth than Boaz. The guy that had the first option and then refused it, see. So Boaz went up to the uh, gate and sat down there and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. And at the end of chapter 3, Ruth is offering herself to Boaz in marriage uh, to do the kinsman redeemer. uh, But Boaz has the integrity to stop and say, uh, I'm not the closest kinsman. There is one who is closer. And this, this whole doctrine, by the way, is, 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 is vital for us because Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. And this is why he has to come and identify with us on the kinship basis. He comes and he lives in true humanity. He walks the walk of humanity in the flesh to identify with us as our kinsman redeemer. The angel of the Lord could not be our kinsman of redeemer. It had to be the word had to be made flesh. He had to walk our walk in humility, in in, uh, all the suffering and all the tempting and everything that that we deal with. So uh, Boaz approaches Knucklehead. See, the Bible doesn't give him a name, so I'm free to give him my own name. Um, (laughs) And that's probably a good thing. I suspect he was a believer and we'll meet him in heaven and God very graciously leaves him anonymous so we we don't laugh at him. I mean, what a fool. 
What a blood. I mean, this man could have been married to, to a godly woman like Ruth, and, uh, and he passes on it. So Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, then took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Court is now in session. Business can be conducted in, in the open. And he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people, and uh, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And uh, so Knucklehead is all excited here, and he says, well, I'll redeem it. Ah, but wait, there's more. Okay. Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire, and I think that's Cana, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And this is the Leveret marriage procedures whereby the brother's name is carried on in the, uh, in the procedure here. And the, glo- and the closest relative then said, um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. And so takes off his sandal and he's worthy of the sandal being removed and contempt and being spat upon. There's a whole concept of this which is encoded in the Mosaic law. And the man passed on the opportunity and Boaz redeems and, and is delighted and this then gives us the lineage, the Davidic lineage that goes down to, to uh, Jesse and then to David and ultimately to, uh, to Christ. So Back to Jeremiah then, there's something similar that's happening here, and we don't know, by the way, how many knuckleheads were in between um, this this guy and Jeremiah. There may have been one or two or however many, all right? And I suspect with the Babylonian armies surrounding um, Jerusalem that most of the Jewish people were not at all even in a mindset of thinking about such things as a field of land, okay, or the right of redemption, or a kinsman redeemer, or leveret marriage, or anything of the sort. I expect that they were so wrapped up in the city under siege, <laughs> and the captives that were already gone, and the rest that weren't yet gone, that were about to be dead, that uh, following some obscure point of Mosaic law was likely not high on their agenda. All right, and so it's it's curious to to me and others. Uh, to ponder what it might have been, and uh, ultimately speaking, who knows? We may we may learn that the whole thing is just a concoction of animal here, uh, the animal. Uh, that um, as food was getting more and more scarce, as his funds were running out, uh, he remembered a piece of land that he could score some cash from from Jeremiah, and he's going to get the cash. He's going to get the cash right here, and I think that's. Uh, that's a nifty uh, principle being played out here. So, um, verse 9, Jeremiah 32, 9, then back to Jeremiah 32. I bought the field, which was at Anathoth, from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed, weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Notice he's doing everything properly. He's following procedures. He's getting his witnesses. And in, in a manner, I think, reminiscent of what Boaz did in calling the, the men to sit down here, let's observe this, and let's, let's do everything right. I signed and sealed the deed, 
called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then um, I took the uh, deeds, plural, of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. You've got an open working copy that everyone can read from and use. That's the basis for the day-to-day operations. Uh, and then the sealed copy, an exact copy, is under seal in case there's a dispute later on. Uh, they can go back and break the seal and compare if anyone tried to monkey with the, uh, the working document. You would be exposed uh, for what it was. And uh, I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch. Here's our first mention of Baruch. And a character that we'll see repeatedly in the upcoming chapters. This is the first mention of Baruch in uh, the book of Jeremiah. I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase between, before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And why is he wasting his time doing all this? <laughs> you know, you've got to imagine these witnesses are wondering, Really? You know, you're like you're hunting around for a notary public. I mean, really? Uh, and you want us to, to file this where? In this temple that's about to be destroyed? Really? Um, why are we doing all this? And I commanded Baruch in the presence, saying, Thus says Yahweh Tzavayot, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. And boy, you talk about a a promise. You talk about living for eternity, even if daily you're expecting judgment. It's, uh, It's quite a pattern. Jeremiah used the occasion to encourage the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's going to use this as a teaching illustration, right? He didn't have PowerPoint, so he said, let's do this. Let's uh, put these scrolls together and put them in a jar, and we'll uh, do everything on the up and up as if it's a normal business practice. This is how business would have been conducted on a normal basis anyway, had they not been surrounded by armies and expecting to die any day. And uh, what, a, uh, what a provision. Here in verses 13 through 15, he's, Jeremiah uses the occasion to encourage the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. The captivity is not total. They're going to come back after 70 years. God will restore their fortunes and and they will move on in the plan of God. A couple of pictures I found. um, Kind of a graphic representation of what some artists thought it looked like as they conducted their business there in the in the uh, garden. I remember he's still a prisoner, so he has to count it all out there, and then Baruch can take the, the funds and take the, the scrolls. Also, by the way, that seal, that archaeology has found an, a wax seal impression that had been made by none other than Baruch, the son of Neriah. The very character that we're introduced here in this chapter, the very character that's featured prominently through the rest of the book. All right. And uh, this is an, uh, a wax seal impression that was made by the very seal that, would have, that was spoken of here in this chapter. And archaeology has uncovered it, even though UNICEF and the UN right now is, is very quick to try to deny that the Jews have any historical connection with the Temple Mount. <laughs> All right, well, archaeology begs to differ. All right, then his prayer in verses 16 through 25. Jeremiah prayed a sweeping prayer recounting the Lord's faithfulness and Judah's faithlessness. So with business out of the way, he then goes to prayer 
And again, this, uh, what a teachable moment. What an opportunity. He prays this sweeping prayer in verses 16 through 25, recounting exactly how faithful Yahweh has been <laughs> and diametrically opposed to that, right? Almost like an inverse proportion. <laughs> the infinite faithfulness of God and the unbelievable faithlessness of the Jewish people and what it is that they're about to encounter, why it is that uh, they're going to lose their, uh, their habitation. So verse 16, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you, who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of fathers unto the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Yahweh Tzivayoth is his name. Great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even to this day, both in Israel and among mankind, and you have made a name for yourself as at this day. Recounting his might, recounting his power, recounting his faithfulness, recounting all that he has done, even up into current events. And even this, armies surrounding Jerusalem, testifies to how faithful God is in his plan, in his word. Because they're dealing with consequences of rejecting Mosaic law. They're dealing with the consequences of the conditional covenant of Moses. That includes the captivity. All right. Uh, Let's see, how do I want to spell this out? This is, let's get down through verse 25 and then we'll kind of outline this whole prayer for you. Um, Verse 21, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders, with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror. So there's the picture of a redeemed people. And gave them this land which you swore to their forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. They came and they took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this calamity come upon them. You're staying faithful to what you said you would do, Lord. Behold, the siege ramps have reached the city to take it. And the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword, the famine, and the pestilence. And what you have spoken has come to pass. Behold, you see it. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses, although the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. All right, so here's Jeremiah's prayer at this time. And he's using this again. He's recounting how faithful Yahweh is, how faithless Judah has been. The creator of heaven and earth has power to provide. He starts with that. I think it's a good place to start any prayer. (laughs) Right? Dear Heavenly Father, and then expand upon that. Creator of heaven and earth, provider of all my needs, (laughs) the one capable to do anything you choose to do. And uh, it's a good reminder that he is able to provide. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, right? Think of all these principles. Remind yourself that the God who created all these things is able to solve my problems. He's able to deal with what it is I'm blaming him for not dealing with. And I can reorient in through prayer, I can reorient 
turning a lamentation into an item of praise and worship. So the creator of heaven and earth has power to provide. And uh, as we see it here in verses 16 and 17, his great power, his outstretched arm. Uh, You've made the heavens and the earth. So uh, what I'm dealing with, you can handle that. It'll come back again in uh, verse 27. Yahweh even agrees with him when he answers the prayer. Uh, We haven't gotten that far, but in verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? So we'll start with that. Jeremiah started with that in his prayer, and God started with that in his answer. And he said, let's just get this you know, off the table right here, right now. I am able to do this. Now, whether I choose to do this or not is a different question. But I am able to do this. And uh, you know I am, and I've said I am, and here we are. I think the, the great power to provide, we have so many promises, but just a highlight of Genesis 18, 14. Uh, Zechariah 8, 6, uh, twice in the Gospel of Luke, it's stressed, is anything impossible for God? You know, with man, a lot of things are impossible, but with God, nothing's impossible. And so we have uh, tremendous promises. And maybe maybe uh, you can add these onto your list of uh, refrigerator magnets or wh- wherever else you keep your little knickknacks of, of Bible promises and, and special verses. But nothing is too difficult for you. Jeremiah thirty two seventeen. There you have it. Or uh, verse 27. Is, is anything too difficult for me? Of course not. Genesis 18, 14. What's happening in Genesis 18? First thing you think of in Genesis 18? Yeah, well, the destruction of Sodom and the arrival of the Lord and his angels and the, uh, the uh, promise of a son and Sarah laughing about it. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot that happens here in this chapter. And uh, oh, I love this chapter. The men show up, and of course, typical man fashion, Abraham sticks his head in the tent and says, uh, you know, uh, we've got four extras here for dinner, or three extras here for dinner, I guess. Um, and uh, so Sarah has to make a bigger dinner. And then uh, they said to Sarah, "Where is Sarah? Or to him, where is Sarah, your wife, in the tent?" And he said, "I will surely return to you this time next year. Behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son." And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him, and laughing the whole time. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, "After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also?" And that, that expression, we figure, it's been a while for Sarah and Abraham. And, and uh, she's just laughing. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. <laughs> oh, but you did. You did, all right? Zechariah 8 and verse 6. See, this is why we want to be honest in our prayers. We want to just lay it before him and say, Lord, nothing is too impossible for you. But right now, Lord, I, uh, I'm struggling, <laughs> okay? Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And uh, Lord, I know nothing is impossible for you, but this, uh, this has me wondering. <laughs> so, Lord, I'm just honest. I'm praying. Zechariah 8 and verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, is it too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people? 
in those days? Or if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I'm about to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And I will bring them back. See, you might think it's impossible. I suspect that God takes great pleasure in bringing us to that point of impossible. (laughs) He takes great pleasure in bringing us to that point where in human terms we've got nowhere else to go. Because we should have turned to him long before then anyway. But he does this for his own glory and he, he brings us to this point. And we can appreciate that. Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And here's another old couple. And, um, yep, nothing shall be impossible with God. And it's interesting, earlier in the chapter, Zacharias was doubting and and got struck in divine discipline, lost his voice. Mary, Mary's got a lot of questions, but they don't appear to be a a lack of faith. They appear to be a positive faith. They appear to be a sense of wonderment. Wow, how's this going to happen since I'm a virgin? And uh, the angel answers and says, hey, God's going to do this. And uh, besides, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so everything in Mary's response here is total faith and wonderment and acceptance and and wonder. I think it relates to the other laughing that was happening. Abraham also laughed, but Abraham laughed in faith. Sarah laughed without faith. And and that pattern, I think, is is what we're looking at here. Zechariah said, how can this be without faith? Mary says, how can this be with faith? And the the response by Gabriel is is different for Zechariah than it is for Mary. And there's a lot that we can glean out of that. Nothing will be impossible with God. Luke 18, 27. And I see it's almost insulting if we pray a prayer and kind of doubting that God can do anything about it. Luke 18, 27. There's a couple of other places where people are coming to Jesus and asking him for a miracle and saying, if you can, and Jesus responds with, if I can, if I can, what are you talking about? Who are you talking to? Anyway. But here uh, with the camel and and, uh, going through the eye of a needle, um, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. What a promise. All right, so we start with that. We start with what's possible for God, and we start with the reminder. And that's where Jeremiah starts in his prayer, and that's where Yahweh starts in his answer, the answer to the prayer. So we have the creator of heaven and earth with the power to provide. We have uh, God with his eyes wide open. He has the wisdom and perception to provide. When you're looking at verses 18 and 19 here, He's great in counsel. His eyes are wide open. See, sometimes when we have uh, diminished faith and when we get skeptical, um, we don't really go to the point that, well, he's not able to provide. We just go to the fact that, well, he's not looking. He's not paying attention. He doesn't see what I'm dealing with. Or he might have the power to provide, but he doesn't know what to do either. (laughs) He knows what to do and how to do it. And he has the power to do it. And so, verse 19, great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the Son of Man. 
He has the wisdom and the perception to provide, along with the power to provide. And we can appreciate that as well. Um, So, he has the power, he has the wisdom, he's able to see what I'm dealing with, he knows what to do about it, and he's able to deal with it. The Redeemer of Israel blessed them at the Exodus. He starts to cycle through past stories. Well, who has time for Bible stories at a time like this? We've got real problems right here, right now. You want me to go back to the Exodus again? Well, that's what he's doing. Cycling doctrine, think about it. It's more than just the moment. It's more than just this. It's, it's a big picture of how God is dealing with us. And it, what's wrong with going back to the Exodus? Or for you and I, let's go back to redemption. Exodus is a picture of redemption, right? Redeemed out of the slave market of sin, as, as the Jews were redeemed out of Egypt. Redeemed out of bondage. The Red Sea is crashing down. There's no going back. The God I'm praying to is the God that gave His Son so that I might live. Nothing wrong with going back to that. In fact, it's, it, we ought to do that all the time anyway. Determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Determined to boast in nothing other than the cross of Christ we were looking at last hour. What's wrong with going back to the Exodus? On a national basis, Israel can do this all day, every day. Go back to the Exodus and say, we are a redeemed people. We are the covenant nation, blessed of the Lord. He has a purpose for us. He didn't design us to destroy us. He designed us to bless us. And so we have a context here that we can use in our prayer life. Israel can use in their prayer life. We can use in our prayer life. Nothing wrong than doing a walk through the Bible, recounting how faithful he's been. Recite a Bible verse. Recite a promise. When Jesus was on the cross, what was he doing? Reciting Bible verses. Citing Psalm 22, recycling the truth that he learned and now expressing it himself and living it out. And so we have this component of the prayer as well. And then a reminder, the faithfulness of God is manifesting the consequences of Israel's faithlessness. When we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And if if you're dealing with divine discipline for your own faithlessness, you can pray about that too. (laughs) <laughs> you know, don't lie about it. Don't make excuses. Just lay it out there. Say, God, I'm faithless. We've done this. We've done that. We've, we were guilty as charged. As we read in verses 23 and 24, they came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They've done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. You know, it's like us today saying, we're saved unto good works which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, and we never did any of them. But hey, thanks for saving us. <laughs> All right? So there's no wonder why in his faithfulness he's disciplining a covenant people that failed to do what they were saved to do. The, the captivity is, just, is an expression of God's faithfulness, if you think about it. And here are the siege ramps. They've approached, they've reached the city to take it. We still haven't repented. Here we are. We still haven't repented. When is repentance going to happen? Well, it's not. It's going to take 70 years of captivity, and even then there will be very little repentance, true repentance, to bring them back. Destruction is imminent, yet Jeremiah obeys God and participates in long-term investments. You know, it's, it's remarkable. They're waiting to get destroyed, and Jeremiah keeps thinking in the long term and serving God and buying, redeeming this property, operating on this basis. 
imminent destruction. Like I expect the rapture today, but we're still training pastors, training evangelists, training spiritual gifts. We're still operating a Bible church. You know, imminency doesn't mean you just become lazy and quit your job and sell your house and live up on a mountain and wait for the Lord to return. People have done that over the years. And uh, eventually you've got to kind of come walking down off that mountain in disappointment and, uh, and uh, in earthly trouble, <laughs> right? Because you quit your job and you sold your house and, and, and you know, weren't you a fool? So uh, imminency is a, is a marvelous opportunity to expect it day by day, moment by moment, but still stay obedient in the long term, obeying God. All right, then the reply, verses 26 and following. The Lord's reply addressed present Mosaic covenant curses and future new covenant blessings. The Lord's reply addressed present Mosaic covenant curses and future new covenant blessings. And at both sides of this, by the way, God's faithful. (laughs) God is no less faithful when he sends them to Babylon than he was when he brought them out of Egypt. He's the same faithful God doing these things. All that he does is faithful. So in verses 26 through 35 is the answer to Jeremiah's prayers. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He will take it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against the city will enter, set the city on fire and burn it. With the houses where people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth. For the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day that they built it, even to this day so that it should be removed from before my face. In other words, it's the faithfulness of God being expressed in wrath towards their wickedness. Because of all the evil of the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned their back to me and not their face, Though I taught them teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. But they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech. We talked about this. That valley to the south of, of Jerusalem became the place of child sacrifice. Gehenna, it became a name for hell by the New Testament era. Things that I have not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And remember, this is, all of this is consequences of what they agreed to when the conditions were laid before them under Moses. Do this and you will live, do this and you will die. These are the blessings, these are the cursings. And they, they divided up by tribe, and six tribes are over here reciting the blessings, and six tribes are over here reciting the cursings. And so all of this judgment coming upon them is the consequences of that cursing recitation. They agreed to the covenant terms and they broke the covenant. God is faithful. And that's what they're going to 
experience the faithfulness of God as they go into captivity. See, under the conditional Mosaic terms, Israel is operating in the conditions that provoke God's wrath. How many times did we read in those verses just now, they provoked me, they provoked me, they provoked me. They did not obey. They're sparking his wrath. They're getting what they deserve. How many times do we read that? They're getting what they deserve. That's not grace. (laughs) Okay, that's law. That's works. That's not an unconditional covenant. That's a conditional covenant. That's why Mosaic law has to be replaced with a new covenant. That's why whatever is obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The conditional covenant has to disappear. The unconditional covenant has to be made. The unconditional covenant that is spoken of here in chapter 31, in chapter 32, in chapter 33. Jesus Christ is not going to reign in the millennium under the Mosaic law. All right? Because they would not keep it in the millennium any more than they kept it in the Old Testament. They need the new covenant for the kingdom of God on earth. They need the unconditional covenant whereby they can be blessed on the basis of I will, not on the basis of if you guys will, then I'll do this. <laughs> okay? And, and by the way, this is, this is, this is a, not only a message for the nation of Israel, it's a message for each one of us. If you want to abandon grace and plunge into legalism, that is a, that is a train wreck. We've got to operate on grace principles based upon God's unconditional promises. I don't want to operate on what we've earned and deserved. Do you want to operate on what you've earned and deserved? I deserve the lake of fire. But I'm saved by grace, and that's how I want to operate. Not only in positional truth, but in the experiential application. All right, then the, the rest of this here. Uh, verses 36 through 44. Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say... It is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword and by famine and by pestilence. They say that. God also said that, but they say that. They're they're writing it off as lost. They're in despair. They see no answers. That uh, we're given over. Sword, famine, and pestilence. But here's what God has to say about this. Yes, you're given over, but there is still a future. There's a restoration promise. There's a kingdom promised. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger. And it's bigger than just one captivity to Babylon and one return back. It is a global regathering that's spoken of here from all the lands. So this includes the ten northern tribes from 722. This includes the southern two tribes from 586. But this also includes in eschatology, this includes a global regathering of Jewish people from the four corners of the earth. I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in the great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. You want to preach peace and safety? Preach peace and safety, but do so when Yahweh makes it happen. Not when we can visualize ourselves and do something ourselves. They shall be my people. I will be their God. Well, isn't that already true? There's a positional truth reality as applies to Israel, but they've not yet made it an experiential realization. That won't happen to the millennial kingdom. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. This is millennial. It's not until the millennium that they get that new heart created within them. They get a unified heart 
All the Jewish people are going to be of one heart and one mind for the thousand-year reign. That's why they stay faithful at the end of the Gog-Magog rebellion. The Jews aren't rebelling. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, as we saw last week in chapter 31. It's not yet made. It's still future. It was future in Jeremiah's day. It was future in Jesus' day. It's future in our day today. It is still yet future. The blood's been shed, but it's not yet been applied. The covenant has not yet been ratified. I will make an everlasting covenant with them on that day. I will not turn away from them to do them, to do them good. I will, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. He never did that when he gave them the tablets, right? He gives them external tablets and says, obey this, and did nothing to their heart. Not so in the millennial kingdom. There will be no stone tablets in the millennium. Everything will be internalized to the Jewish people. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart, with all my soul. Wow. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul. Here's Yahweh loving them with all his heart, with all his soul. Isn't that a beautiful concept? Just, for thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on all this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. As I've done this, so I will do that. That is in perfect faithfulness. Fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given in the hands of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds, and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. A complete survey there of all that remained of, of Judah and promises for all of it. See, under the unconditional new covenant terms, God will provide Israel with a unified heart. This didn't happen with the Zerubbabel returnings. Ezra and Nehemiah, they brought them back to the land. They built another temple. (laughs) And and we read in the Gospels of all the lack of faith and evil and the Pharisees that Jesus had to deal with. No, this is second advent. This is millennial, but by the time this becomes a reality, God will provide Israel with a unified heart. The Jews will personally and nationally fear the Lord and reap every blessing they could not imagine under the conditional law of Moses. Personally and nationally. Every individual Jewish unbeliever will, of course, be sent to hell. So personally, they will be saved, but also nationally, they will be saved. Personally and nationally, fear the Lord and reap every blessing they could not imagine under the conditional law of Moses. See what God is going to fulfill. He will make this happen. He will give them this heart. They will be empowered to fulfill kingdom law, which is far more severe than Mosaic law ever thought of. All right, so here's what we're dealing with here. Um, It'll continue next week in chapter 33. Um, The word of the Lord will come to him a second time while he's still confined in the court of the guard. And uh, he'll get another message here. Marvelous messages that he gets to preach related to the coming Davidic kingdom, this new covenant. We get to look at the branch again, David the branch. That is the seed of David, the root and branch of of Jesse that we've studied before. So we'll come back to that. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for the new covenant. I thank you for the promises that Israel has. 
promises that you cannot break, no matter how faithless they are. And I thank you, Father, for the perspective we have in the body of Christ. We are ministers of the same new covenant that uh, your Son, Father, is the mediator. I thank you for our position in Him. I thank you for the eternal estate that we have, the blessings we have in Christ. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding to these realities, especially, Father, where we make our own application, where we ourselves feel like Jeremiah a lot of the time, surrounded by darkness, surrounded by uh, destruction, and yet, Father, knowing that your plan goes forth. I pray that we can live under principles of imminency while yet living long-term, and that uh, your word would shape us in these, in these things. Father, thank you for the, uh, the joy and delight that we have to study Isaiah, to study Jeremiah, to get uh, contrasting messages, to be able to be equipped with both approaches, Father, uh, given uh, where our nation is heading and may yet still be heading. Father, we uh, look back to the election and uh, some folks are giddy and some folks are in despair. And Father, it seems uh, that uh, we have uh, work to do with respect to communicating your truth and the perspective that your truth provides. And Father, uh, for any brother or sister that, whose faith rests in a political election, I pray that you would adjust that thinking to, to uh, remedy it, Father, so that we're looking to the Lord and not to man. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.